You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 149th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm delighted to interview one of our regular guests, Nigel Beckles, about his new book, which I'm going to let him tell you about. He's also the author of How to Avoid Making the Big Relationship Mistakes, which is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle formats. He's a certified relationship coach. He's also the holder of Psychology of Relationships Diploma and Dealing with Narcissism Diploma. He's a speaker workshop facilitator, and relationship specialist. I am so glad that you were able to take the time today to talk with us. Hello, Kim. Good to be with you. Always good to have a conversation with you, my friend. Tell us about the new book. What is it called and what is it about? Well, the new book, which will be published May of this year, is called How to Avoid Abusive Relationships, A Guide to Toxic Personalities. And it says what it does on the tin. It's about abusive relationships. Okay. And what would you tell us about a toxic personality? There's more than one, I'm sure. But what exactly do you mean when you say toxic personality? Well, the most toxic would be your narcissist, your sociopath and your psychopath. But there are different degrees of toxic personalities. And also, it's not a question of a person necessarily having a personality disorder. They may just have some quirks in their personality that are not healthy for other people. Right. That's so true. There's a lot of women that I work with who come to me after a breakup and they all swear they were dating a narcissist. And I thought, well, they may have been a selfish person, but they may not truly be a narcissist. There is a difference. So how do you define an abusive relationship? Before I go into that, I would say going back to narcissists, I think the term narcissist is thrown around a little bit too freely these days. Just because someone may be arrogant or rude, etc. doesn't necessarily mean they're a narcissist. They may have some traits that are not necessarily good for interacting with other people. In terms of an abusive relationship, abuse takes many forms. And the goal of an abuser is basically power and control. They want to assert power and control over their partner. How they go about that, they have different tactics that they will use to assert power and control. You really have to be careful out there. I mean, I'm from the UK, as your listeners will probably guess from my accent. But here, on average, we have two women every week who are murdered by a partner or an ex-partner. Wow. So, And if you look at the coronavirus pandemic over here, there was a general increase in domestic abuse. Support services were flooded with calls for, you know, help and support. So, yes, it's a it's a major problem. Last week, we had a case where a police officer was actually found guilty of many crimes against women. His name was David Carrick. He was a police officer. He admitted dozens of rapes and sexual offences against 12 women. As I recall, he pleaded guilty to 43 charges, including 20 counts of rape. And last week, he was given uh, 36 life sentences. And then we had another mm. case last week as well, a lady called Emma Patterson. She was a head teacher of Epsom College here in the UK. And her and her seven-year-old daughter were shot dead by her husband who then killed himself. 
So those are two high profile cases that we've had in the UK in the last 10 days, say. And while they are high profile, the less profile cases don't really get a mention. And it's a worldwide epidemic. Obviously, it doesn't just happen to people in the UK. It happens to people all over the world. And it's also called intimate partner violence. So you can use yeah. other term, either domestic abuse or intimate partner violence. But yes, yeah, a major problem. And it's not just women who suffer from uh, abuse in relationships. Men suffer too. I mean, on average, they reckon about 30 men a year are killed again by a partner or ex-partner. But it's yeah. a worldwide problem and it, it affects everyone. It doesn't matter about your gender, your race, your socioeconomic position, your religious beliefs. Abuse can happen to anyone. It's just that sometimes people can be quite dismissive because they haven't actually been through it, you know. And there's also that kind of victim blaming that goes on. Well, why doesn't she leave or why does she stay? But it's not a, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. It can be very difficult. As far as women are concerned, if they're in an abusive relationship and they decide to leave, they need to keep that to themselves because that can be when they're at the most risk. If their abuser knows that they plan to leave, they may up their abuse. Exactly. I just read last week about a case where a man, I don't remember any of the names, but a man who was an attorney murdered his wife in front of three of their five children, and the youngest was only two. I just can't imagine the trauma when you say it affects everyone. In that case, of course, his wife had a family. He himself must have parents and brothers, sisters, whatever, and then their five children those are lives that are affected forever. I agree with you. It's an epidemic and it is a worldwide problem. Have you noticed that there's a particular type of person who might fall victim to an abusive relationship? You said it happens across all economic statuses, doesn't matter what your job is, but is there a particular type of person that might fall victim to an abusive relationship? Well, the first thing I would say is a lack of healthy personal boundaries. So if a person lacks healthy personal boundaries, they are likely or more likely to fall prey to an abusive person. That's an interesting question because you can say, well, poor personal boundaries. But again, if someone's desperate for a relationship, for example, they are more likely to fall prey to an abusive relationship. They may have been in a previously abusive relationship. They may have low self-esteem. They may have codependent traits, for example. They may be quite empathic. And they may also always be making excuses for the abuser. And plus, abusers are usually very good at projection. So they'll use lines like, oh, you made me do it. It's your fault. Right. And there's no excuse for abuse. It's just as simple as that. But there is a certain amount of brainwashing that goes on with abusers as well. And gaslighting. So they try basically to alter your sense of reality. Can you talk a minute about gaslighting? Because that's another term that's thrown around a lot. And I, I want our audience to really understand what really is gaslighting. Gaslighting actually comes from a movie. I think it's a 1930s movie of the same name, Gaslighting, where a husband seeks to drive his wife mad. But basically, gaslighting is someone trying to alter your perception of reality. A simple example would be you're with a partner. You're a woman. You're with a partner. You put your purse on the kitchen table. 10 minutes later, you come back to get your purse. The purse is gone. You say to your partner, well, I put the purse there. They'll say, no, you, no, you didn't. I never saw your purse there because they've actually moved it. They've moved it. So again, it's, it's about trying to alter the target's perception of um, reality. And it can and drive someone to the brink of insanity. 
Towards what end do people do that? Is it so that they'll believe the other person's narrative about the abuse? Or is it really just to drive somebody crazy? What would be the purpose that someone would use gaslighting? I'll go back to what I said earlier. All abusers are about power and control. They just Mm. have different tactics. So gaslighting is a form of trying to assert control. Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) So let's say that a person is in an abusive relationship. How could they actually get out of it? How could they escape? Well, they need to, first of all, make a plan. You've got to make an, uh, an exit strategy to actually escape from an abusive relationship. I mean, there is a lot of support out there. I would imagine most countries have some type of domestic abuse hotline that they can call. Obviously, in the UK, domestic abuse is against the law. So a victim can call the police. They can call a support agency. But the thing is, you have to make a serious plan to leave and a secret plan. If a person's in an abusive relationship, I would always say you never tell your abusive partner that you are planning to leave. You plan in secret and you leave in secret and hopefully you will get away unscathed. That doesn't mean to say that your problems will be over because the other problem we have is our stalking. A lot of abusive partners, they're very possessive because an abuser doesn't necessarily see their partner as a person. They see their partner as an object, an object that they possess. So even if a person manages to leave safely, that doesn't mean to say they're going to be safe after they've left. Stalking is a very big problem and it's not always necessarily an ex-partner. There was a case here a couple of years ago. This lady, she met this chap in a pub um, where there were live bands and they just got talking. And then he asked her out and she wasn't interested. And he began to stalk her, writing on her front door, you're going to die. And eventually he actually attacked her and stabbed her several times and she survived. Wow. But yeah, stalking is another issue you may have to deal with after you've left an abusive relationship. I've noticed some people in a Facebook group that you manage. I don't know if you still have that Facebook group, but it was for people who have escaped or are in an abusive relationship. And one of the things that struck me about some of the people in there was the trauma bonding that happens and how even after they're physically out of the relationship, they're still pining for the other person and the love part of that relationship. Can you say a little something about that? First of all, the Facebook group is still going strong. Reflections on abusive relationships. We now have about 20,000 plus members, been going for 10 plus years. So we're still doing our best to support others. In terms of trauma bonding, that is often caused by hot and cold behavior. Effectively, if you're dealing with an abuser, one minute they'll be very nice and sweet and kind, then they switch and they're nasty and cruel. And then what happens is the victim often wants to get back to what I call the honeymoon phase. So they try to make things better. Hot and cold. It's actually called intermittent reinforcement. That's the actual official term. And I'm sure you've heard of um, Stockholm Syndrome. And that's named after there was a back in the 70s, there was a a bank robbery and hostages were taken. It was like eight or nine women. It was resolved, but during the time they were held hostage, they were subjected to intermittent reinforcement. So when the police eventually raided and rescued them, one of the women wanted to post bail for one of her captors, and another lady wanted to get engaged to another one of the captors. So that's where the term Stockholm Syndrome comes from. But if you look at Stockholm Syndrome and trauma bonding, the terms are kind of interchangeable. When you read certain research, you know, sometimes they'll use the term Stockholm Syndrome. Other times someone might use the term uh, trauma bonding. But it's very, very similar, basically. 
Yes. I think of Patty Hearst. That was someone that we had in the United States, and she also was a victim of Stockholm Syndrome. The intermittent reinforcement, if I could say that for our audience who doesn't know intermittent reinforcement, if you are rewarding a certain behavior and you do it consistently, it is not as motivating as when you do it inconsistently. And they call it intermittent reinforcement. And for some reason, it makes the person work all the harder to get the reward. That's what you're talking about happens in these abusive relationships is they'll be kind and sweet and loving sometimes, but not all the time. And so it would cause a person psychologically to just work that much harder to get the nice person again. Hmm. It's quite similar to a dog chasing its tail, actually, because the dog never catches its tail. See, when you're looking at abusive relationships, especially with narcissists, because narcissists have a very particular cycle they go through in all of their relationships. The cycle is idealise, so when they first meet the person, they put them on a pedestal, treat them like a king or queen, etc. So that's the idealisation stage. Then you have the devalue stage. Then they start finding everything wrong with their partner. Whether there's anything wrong with them or not, they'll just start picking fault or finding fault. So that's the devalue phase. And then you have the discard phase where the narcissist discards their partner, often without any warning or hints or anything. They just disappear or ghost as the term is now. So that's really the narcissist cycle. Then if you look at the other part of the cycle is the hoover. So eventually, often the narcissist seeks to return. And then if you accept them back, you're just going to go through the same cycle again, probably faster than the first cycle. Right. So, yeah. It just sounds so tragic to me. If you're a person who may be prone to this kind of relationship, What would you say are some of the red flags to watch out for so that you don't get sucked into another one? I know people who can go from one abusive relationship right into another and into another if they ever do get away from their abuser. What are the red flags people should be looking for? First of all, what I should say is that many abusers are actually quite charming and they're quite gregarious, which is what sucks their victims in in the first place. I would say, first and foremost, pay attention to your intuition. If you're dating somebody new, that's a very good start. Also pay attention to how they actually treat other people. Pay attention to how they speak about their relationship history. So if they're always blaming their ex-partners for what went wrong in their previous relationships, that's a red flag. Because in the final analysis, if you get involved with someone like that, and the relationship fails, you can guarantee they're going to blame you for the relationship to failing. If they're rude and verbally abusive to other people, and I think the biggest red flag is if they seek to rush the other person into a relationship. Because again, they rush the person into an intimate relationship, then they are in a prime position to start trying to assert their power and control. Right. So I like the idea about paying attention to your intuition and perhaps to circle all the way back to the first thing you said was maybe learn how to develop those healthy boundaries that people need to have when they're in relationship with anyone. It's knowing yourself well enough to know what's okay and what's not okay and listening to yourself and being able to assert that boundary. And if you do assert a boundary and the response is disproportionate to what you're drawing the boundary around, then that might be a really good indication that this person is not going to accept your boundaries and it may be borderline on abuse and moving into that direction. I would definitely agree with that. If someone is hostile to your personal boundaries, that is a massive red flag because everyone should be operating with healthy boundaries. 
The other thing you have to look out for, you know, you have to check yourself in regarding your self-esteem because if a person's got low self-esteem, they're more likely to get involved in an abusive relationship. And if they're desperate for a relationship, I mean, we're just talking now day after Valentine's and I'm sure there's a percentage of people out there who are like lonely and sad yesterday. But I always say, if you're not happy being single, it's going to be very unlikely that you're going to be happy in a relationship. You basically, you have to be um, self maintaining and self uh, managing. I mean, in my first book, I've got a whole chapter called being single tells you all the different things you can do, you know, take up a new hobby, try meditation. Journaling is very good. In fact, that's how I ended up writing my first book because I went through a horrific relationship and I started journaling my thoughts and my feelings. And then I started to do research. And then five years later, I published the book because I'd done so much research. I mean, my first book draft was like 800 pages. No one wants to read <laughs> an 800 page book. So myself and my editor, we got it down to 400 pages. But yes, it's important to be together in yourself. I've had long periods of being single, you know, three years, four years at a time. What I do tend to find is that when I'm single, I'm very productive. I get a lot of things done because at the end of the day, relationships require work. I'm Work mm -hmm. and time. No, my projects are my children. That's how I look at it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I know the feeling. I was also going to say earlier that there's this conventional wisdom that two people get together and become one. Or that movie line, you complete me, which is just a fallacy, really. What you're saying is each individual in a healthy relationship needs to be complete on their own. And then two complete people can come together and create a wonderful life. But if you're incomplete and looking for another person to complete you, that is a trap. And you're likely going to find someone who won't know how to treat you. And I think there's one other thing that we didn't mention. I don't know if you go into this in your book, but I know that if you are a child raised in a home with domestic violence, you may have learned that that's the norm and that's the way marriage is. And so it doesn't feel so scary to you or it doesn't feel like, well, there's something wrong here. It might just feel like this feels normal. I know what this is. And that may be another reason why people stay, because it mimics what they were around as a child. Now, you could go in the exact opposite direction and say, I lived in this domestic violence home and there's nothing I would ever do to get into a situation like that. But I imagine sometimes it just feels familiar. That is very true, because if someone's been brought up as a child witnessing domestic violence, they can equate abuse with love. Right. So as you say, yes, it, it can feel familiar. For myself, first of all, I grew up in a home where I witnessed domestic violence as a young child and that had quite profound effects on me as an adult. But again, as you said, you can go in the totally opposite direction, which is where I'm at, which is why I do what I do, basically, because I know how difficult it can be. And I think more so, actually, it's more difficult for guys in a lot of ways because guys don't really express themselves. Women are very good at networking and sharing emotions, etc. Guys, not so much. So, you know, with guys, you've got something called the guy code, which is guys will talk about sports, talk about what's happening at work. Cars. Cars. But they will not discuss their um, emotions with their peers or their friends because they're scared of being judged. They're scared of not being seen as being masculine, which leads to the other issue, which is the male suicide rate is two thirds plus higher for men than it is for women. And I believe that's because a lot of guys bottle up their feelings. Anyway, we digress. But yes, um, in terms of witnessing abuse as a child, yes, that can have a very profound effect on you. It certainly had a profound effect on me. Um, I had a lot of issues to kind of unpack. And then the other issue I had 
is um, one of my parents has highly narcissistic traits. So again, going back to familiar, because I've been involved with more than one narcissistic woman. But again, because I was brought up in that environment, it feels familiar. The red flags that you should pick up on, you don't necessarily pick up on because of your past experience, because of how you've been effectively conditioned to accept mm -hmm. toxic behavior as normal behavior. You let certain things slide. I've learned my lessons on that one. Well, when you say you've learned your lessons, I'm not going to dig into that, but I'm curious if you are a fan or if you recommend therapy or some kind of professional help when you're working through those kind of issues. 100%. 100%. What I admire about the American culture, it's very normal to go to a therapist or go to a counsellor. There's no like shame or guilt or it's hidden. Whereas here, it's a little bit different. It's getting better. Even just if you're just watching TV shows. I used to watch a lot of American TV shows and the counsellor or therapist will come up in the storyline from time to time. Quite normal. I see my therapist every Wednesday at three o'clock or whatever. It's quite normal over there. But here, the British culture, there's that old saying, stiff up a lip old boy and all of that. But again, if you're bottling things up, that's not healthy. If you're struggling with certain issues from your past, that's not healthy. So I always advocate, yeah, 100%. You know, if you're struggling, go and see someone professional. Great. So I hate to say this, but I think we're coming to the end of our time. Our time always goes so fast. Is there anything you might like to add that we haven't already talked about? Well, I would say, again, if someone's in an abusive relationship, they should reach out for help and support. There's lots of help and support out there. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The person who is being abused, it's not their fault. And they need to get away ASAP, ASAP. They just have to make a plan and leave. Because the thing with abusive relationships, they don't get better. They get worse. The abuse escalates. And you will never know where it's going to escalate to. If you stay in an abusive relationship, effectively, you're putting your life at risk. If you have children, you're putting your children's lives at risk as well. So I would always say, you know, reach out, get the support and help you need. So you can then formulate your exit strategy and leave secretly. Yeah, you've made that point a few times. I think that that should be underlined. When you're making a plan to leave an abusive relationship, be very careful who you tell, not just don't tell your partner, but if you mention it to someone who might mention it to someone else who mm. may go back and tell your partner, that can really create a very dangerous situation. So mm. I think that's important to really underscore. And do you have anything coming up that you'd like to tell our audience about? I know we have this book launch in May. Is there anything else going on with you that the audience might like to get involved with? Well, I'm planning a few virtual seminars and workshops this year as well. So that's in the pipeline. I think it's important to share the knowledge. I'm all about sharing knowledge at the end of the day. And I've got like, obviously, I've got the lovely people like you who are experts in the field, etc., so I'm hoping to get some of my previous guests from my podcast involved in doing some presentations and sharing their expertise. I can totally relate and underscore as well how great you are at sharing knowledge, because I remember when I had you on the very first time, I didn't know what I was doing. And you were a great podcaster. You'd done so many shows and you were helping me and sharing software and different things that I could do that would make it better. And you've really helped me tremendously. So it's not just that you share information in this arena, but you share information that you know with people who could use it. And you're a very generous that way. And I, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for that and just let the audience know he means what he says. He does like to share information and the information he has to share is always spot on. 
Thank you for that. And then if people wanted to get in touch with you, I know when we were talking offline, you mentioned you have a new website. Do you want to tell our listeners what that is? Is it live yet? And how could they reach you if they were interested in more information? Yes, the website is very live. The website is authornigelbeckles.com and it's got lots of information regarding relationships. I do at least two or three blogs a week. In fact, I posted one earlier today about the potential challenges of intimate relationships. So there's lots of useful information on my website. And also on the website, there's a free ebook that visitors can download as well. Oh, great. I'm sure there'll be people who will want that. (laughs) Thank you for that. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us today. I didn't give you much notice and you made yourself available and that was just wonderful and I'm very appreciative. And I know you're very busy podcasting, writing and promoting the new book. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking time to talk with me today. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing David Anderson about relationships. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.